This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got Murtaza Haider. Yeah, Murtaza Haider. He's an associate professor at Ryerson. Uh, he's an author. He's picked up regularly by the Financial Post. He's prolific, prolific blogger. Prolific bo- blogger. He's co-author of the blog, The Haider Moranis Bulletin. I love this bulletin. I, and I, it was funny. I, I actually didn't know about this bulletin because it's largely Toronto-based. Right. But after we had our conversation, I, I, I kind of spent an afternoon delving through all the information that they've generated on this blog. And it's fascinating. And you stuff. know what? I like to think of it very similar to the way I think of the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. A lot of the stuff we talk about is Vancouver-specific, but you can take it and generalize this information, right? Sure. Which is exactly what they're doing on this bulletin. I mean, one of the things... Uh, how we came across the Haider Moranis Bulletin is it's picked up by the Financial Post and Murtaza Haider had written an article called Speculation Can Be Good for right. Housing Markets. Just look at Paris, which was a which is what he's talking about here today, but which is a super interesting look back at late 19th century Paris and how it exploded in population. Right. And speculators basically helped create the city as a global world-class city. So he's looking at investment as a positive thing in cities. That's exactly it. And we talked to him about that today. So stay tuned for that. It's a fascinating conversation. Yeah, it's one you definitely don't want to miss. Okay, but before we get to an interview with Murtaza Haider, Matt, we've been kind of monitoring the market here on a regular basis. And well, I mean, we talk about it every week. So it's not like uh, it's, it's not like this is going to be a dramatic change from our conversation 
last Wednesday. But you know but what? It's interesting. I mean, we're we're in our office. We're talking to realtors across the Lower Mainland, right? And I think everybody's kind of looking. This is literally a market that seems to be shifting very subtly, but changing week over week. I mean, there are noticeable changes, and it does seem to be every week, right? Because I mean, what what happens is we we like to pride ourselves on calling a lot of agents that we know right across Greater Vancouver and getting a sense of how their listings performed after the weekend, right after the open houses. Are you sold? Did you sell above asking? How many offers did you get? And it gives us a good read on what's going on in the immediate market and in each price band, right? And what we're starting to notice now is, I mean, these headwinds that have been kind of circulating in the market where we've had big policy changes come into effect, we're starting to see them kind of actually come into effect in a way where people are saying, wait a second, either I'm going to, it's a forced sale where maybe speculation tax or something related to that forces somebody to have to sell their property, or alternatively, people are thinking that it's going to have an impact on the market, so they're pulling back. They're pulling back, and the urgency's gone there. Um, You know, the way I've been thinking about it is we had the stress test, interest rate increases, uh, policy shifts by the NDP, but we had a real lack of inventory in Q1. So it was very hard to discern exactly what was happening. I mean, we know sales were down, but inventory was so low. Yes. Now we're kind of peak spring, inventory is picking up, and there's some good inventory hitting the market finally, uh, in my mind. Like we have about five listings coming up that we're we're really excited about. Yeah. But the question is going to be with this new inventory how is that going to impact the market for sure and that's and that's the thing right now that buyers actually will have some selection coming so it'll be interesting to monitor what inventory does kind of in the second quarter here um but also what we've noticed is that even in terms of price bands we've we've talked at length about the higher end of the market just being pummeled right now right? right like where it's really tough if you have a house over two million bucks right now it's it's a challenging market west side's a challenging market high price points in the east side challenging markets right um but now we're actually starting to see that trickle down into the lower price points and what the reason I, I bring that up is because we've talked to so many agents that have had one bedrooms and lower price two bedrooms where they've actually been skunked on on their offer presentation. Well, and they and they price it uh, in order to get multiple offers, and they're still skunked. I mean, that's yeah. the so. I mean, that does speak to uh, the lack of urgency in the market. The fact that you know people took it as kind of just the cost of doing business that you had to compete a year or two years ago, right. In order to buy a property here, and it seems like there's a uh, a lack of willingness on the part of certain buyers to do so now. It's interesting because you know this was in a different context when Jason Turcott said this about the pre-sale market, but he said, it's really interesting. It'll be interesting in the summer if a pre-sale project sells for a lesser amount on a price per square foot basis than the last pre-sale project, then everything's going to shift, right? Right. And I wonder right now, and I'm just, this is just anecdotally from speaking to agents in in some of the, the lower price market bands where they've actually had sales that have been either at the same price as the last sale in the building or slightly below Mm-hmm. And so it's it's interesting to monitor. And again, this is reading into some really subtle shifts, 
but it's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, and that's why we're we're talking about it week over week here because it does feel like every week is a little bit different. And, you know, a year ago, we would have been talking week after week and we'd be saying, yeah, it was a jump in price, jump in price. For sure. Right now, it just feels like, I don't think there's, it's possible to say much of anything definitively right now, but, it, but we're in a different moment for and, sure. And to bring it full circle, I mean, when you've been driving 200 kilometers an hour and you reduce the speed to 180, you know, it feels slower, but we're still in a very busy market, oh, right? Yeah, we're, we're still, we're still in a, properties every week, in a yeah. buoyant market and there's a ton of sales happening all over greater Vancouver. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't say this is balancing out. I wouldn't say that this is necessarily an opportunity for buyers. Just say that it seems to be shifting slightly. Yeah. We're in the minutia for sure, but that's what we do here at the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. <laughs> Speaking of minutia, why don't we, uh, why don't we go to our in-depth conversation with Murtaza Haider? Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Murtaza Haider, uh, an associate professor at Ryerson University. How are you doing, Murtaza? Perfect, thank you. Can can you maybe start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, um, I'm a, I teach at Ryerson University in Toronto in the Department of Real Estate Management. My primary focus of uh, research is uh, housing markets, real estate markets, and I also uh, do work in transportation, looking at the intersection between accessibility and, and land development. And um, uh, I also write a weekly column for Financial Post, which often gets uh, picked up by, by other uh, publications in the Post media. Right. And actually, that's how we, we came across your work. Uh, specifically, uh, what caught our attention was an article published in the Financial Post called Speculation Can Be Good for Housing Markets. Just look at Paris. Uh, Murdaza, can what does late 19th century Paris tell us about early 21st century Vancouver? Oh, absolutely. This is very interesting. Um, I was um, at uh, visiting Boston, um, uh, Cambridge, um, a few months ago, and I saw the, uh, one of the bookstores there, a, a book that was published by Harvard um, Press about speculation in housing markets. And I and it looked very interesting to me, and I picked it up, and then it took me some time before I finally read it. And, and it really was an interesting um, review of what happened, let's say, between 1875 and, and, and 1890 or 1895 in Paris. And, and it was a time when the demand for new housing was tremendous. Um, but Paris was growing by hundreds of thousands of people in a very short period of time. And to meet the growing demand for housing, there was a need to build more housing. But then who will build it? You needed, spec- you needed investors and you needed speculators. So there was this amazing uh, union and collaboration between architects. Uh, and architects in Paris became in, in investors and, and became entrepreneurs, and they actually brought investors into the market, and they, they brought engineers, and they all collaborated to get find the risk capital to start construction. And at the very same time that we saw these great monuments being built in France and Paris, the same time all these low-rise housing was being built for the current and future residents of Paris. So from that perspective, uh, if you think about today's Vancouver, you obviously have a situation where the demand for new housing far exceeds what Vancouver is able to build. And, and, and there are obviously constraints in Vancouver that 
Paris didn't have. Vancouver, you have water um, um, in, at one end, so water is a constraint. You don't have much land, and the land that you have is not flat, so that's another constraint. And on the other side, where you have flat land, you end up running into the U.S. border. So, so these are the physical constraints that are there, and you have to overcome those to increase the supply of develop of new housing. And what is being done, I think, at, on the, at this stage, is more of an of an attempt. To, to curtail prices by imposing taxes on, on, on foreign buyers and now even on Canadians who are not living in British Columbia. But a better approach, I think, if you were to look at the, at the, at the example from, from, uh, from Paris, is to in, welcome invest, investment into housing and create vehicles and avenues for a lot more housing construction in the Vancouver, greater Vancouver region, so that the demand pressures are eased not by excessive taxation, but by supply of new housing. And and it may sound like, well, why would we take advice from, from 19th or 20th century Paris? Um, there was another article recently published um, um, uh, in, in looking at the supply of new housing in, in Tokyo, and Tokyo is a much larger city than uh, Toronto. I think it's one of the largest cities in the world with 20, 30 million people there. And Tokyo is also a place where the domestic fertility rates are much lower um, than even in Canada and elsewhere. So even then, they have been building housing at a higher pace uh, than the uh, than the increase in the in the demographics to to be able to. Uh, relieve pressure on housing prices and rents. And one of the reasons why Tokyo did not experience much higher housing prices or rents is because of the, the higher rate of supply. So if, if you are sitting in Vancouver and you're concerned about the affordability and rents and higher prices, um, I think you have to look at it holistically, not to say that no taxation is the route, but to say better approach would be to find ways to to embrace more investments into the construction of new housing. Supply would ease pressures in, in, in the long run rather than these these interventions. Because you've gone to one series of tax, taxation, so you had the foreign home buyers tax in 2016, and the market had a jolt, and it, but then it took less than a year to, to, to start uh, climbing, for, for the prices to start climbing up. So taxation could have that sort of a cross-sectional relief that would be there for two, three months. But if the demand is there and you're doing nothing to, to satisfy that demand by increasing a large number of supply for housing, then these short-term uh, impacts will remain short-term impacts through new taxation. And Murtaza, one of the one of the numbers that you have uh, put forth in the article that really struck me was between 1879 and 1885, there was over 13,000 buildings constructed in in Paris, which which is seems um, like they were building like gangbusters. That seems like a really uh, a really quick pace. Um, you mentioned Tokyo as well as being as building much quicker than than Canadian urban centers. Why is why is Canada um, approaching this from from a different and wrong headed angle? Do you think? I think there there could be several reasons. I mean, obviously for Vancouver, the lack of land is is a big constraint. You, you know, it, Vancouver can be Houston, which which has tremendous greater supply of land for developable land. So there are physical constraints. But I think there has to be um, a, a few other systematic 
reasons behind it. One of them is the the way our planning culture is. So most urban planners uh, are, work for the government and, and sort of the, the way we train urban planners, and I know this because I was a professor of urban planning at McGill University, so I know this firsthand, that we, we, do, not, we, not, we do not see builders in a positive light, uh, and they're never covered or seldom covered in a positive light in the, in the urban planning curricula. So what happens is that most planners get educated thinking that you know, you, your goal is to oppose builders. And, and you have to impose these density regulations and zoning regulations, and the builders will ask for, for concessions, and your job is to you know, oppose them. So I think that cultural change has to happen where we have to realize that each and every one of us, if not all of us, not each and most of us live in a house that was built by a builder. May that be a low rise or a high rise. So the builders are the ones who actually create the very living spaces that we occupy. And we cannot have a pejorative, pejorative view of the industry, the building industry. If you look at the, the research done in housing, almost Almost all of the research is done on housing demand and none on supply. I think um, if I recall that in the last 20 years, myself and another colleague and a friend of mine who's now a professor at the University of uh, Western Ontario, Mike Buzelli and I were the only two people who actually studied the supply side of housing as part of our doctoral research because everybody else continues to study the demand side. So for to study supply side, you have to study builders. You have to see what motivates them, what are the constraints that they face in developing land and the type of housing they built. And if we were to change that culture, if we were to say that builders are providing a social good, uh, a thing that is desirable by the society, and that's a living spaces, then we can have a different view um, and probably we'd look, start looking at supply side solutions. But right now, uh, I see, see a lot of commentary by planning departments saying that, A, we are building sufficient housing, no need to build more. And actually, I, I am surprised at it. When you see housing prices rise and you say we are building sufficient housing, obviously you're not, because that's, that basically is, is the reason why prices are rising, or it's a primary contributor to the increase in pricing, if not the reason. And the second thing is that the, the this denial that the real solution lies in supply um, based on some some poor or, or insufficient understanding of housing markets is is the reason. So a a change in planning culture that um, that is more welcoming and more respectful of the the, the building or development development industry, and and b um, looking at this whole process not from a punitive way of say we're going to put taxes and we're going to make it more difficult and we're going to make it more more expensive for you to buy, and then to say actually there's higher demand and people would like to live here. And, and, and I see commentary in Vancouver. People are saying, oh, we don't want people to come and live here. We don't want to be the resort for foreigners. That sort of xenophobic view would not have given you Paris, would not have given you London, would not have given you New York. If all of these great cities that we love and admire also started thinking what I the same way what I read in the commentary in, new, in newspapers in Vancouver, we don't want people to come here, we don't want foreigners, we don't want to see anybody else, then you would realize that you will never be like the big cities and and if you want to be sort of a provincial in, in your thinking, then you have that option, but that's not the preferred option. A city has to be welcoming. The world has shrunk a lot. So, so for, 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 you, for one to attract talent, for one to attract global talent, you have to be welcoming. You cannot be saying that we don't want foreigners. I think the word foreigner is, is probably had some currency 50, 100 years ago, but this is a globe now, and everybody's a citizen of this globe. You have to have a more 
uh, more uh, welcoming view to the rest of the world rather than to say we're going to build walls and we're going to you know we're going to keep people out and and we're going to put taxes on people and whatnot. At, there's a need for us to make housing affordable. That's that's what I'm suggesting is not arguing against making housing affordable, but the way to affordability is to build more, much more than what we have built now. Right. So. Um, you know, obviously, uh, in BC, the Liberals brought in the foreign buyers tax in 2016, but that was kind of uh, had reached a boiling point, and the narrative about foreign buyers and and foreign speculation has been, you know, uh, talked about for a long, long time here in Vancouver. It sounds like you're saying there's there's no useful distinction to be made between foreign and domestic speculation, as uh, both the provincial governments, the last two provincial governments, have done. So for for new construction, um, the way it's structured, and I'm more familiar with Ontario than I am with with the with British Columbia, but um, the builder has to have a pre-sales. So he has to have something like seventy to eighty percent of the units right. pre-sold before they approach the bank for funding, and the banks would not fund them unless they have pre-sold. So the question is. Who are the people who are willing to wait for five to seven years before a pre-sale unit comes to fruition and you can occupy it? So by default, the way the financing of the new build building uh, stock is structured, it has to be done through investors. Um, because if I want to buy a new house and I walk in and I see a pre-built unit that will be available in five years and I make a down payment, my household structure may change by that time. I may have a child or two. Uh, I may get married. I may get divorced. And all of these things happen to people in five to seven years. So you cannot possibly be the same person who is making an investment into housing, into a pre-built unit, and now thinking you will occupy in five, seven years, knowing what kind of changes that will happen in your life in those five to seven years. And for that very reason, the people who invest in a pre-built unit cannot be the same people who will eventually be occupying that unit, and hence the need for speculators, or hence the need for what I call investors, because I don't think people are speculating. Speculating is, is, by, is very different, and we wrote another column in Financial Post explaining the difference between investment and speculation. Most commentators and most people who are actually talking about speculation do not know the difference. Um, by their definition, investing in stocks becomes speculation, which is not speculation. So without keep, with, with, with keeping that de- distinction and debate about speculation and investments aside, I think the, the role for investors is there in the way we have structured the housing finance, housing construction finance in Canada, as long as the units have to be pre-sold before a builder can go and ask for larger loan from the banks. Um, someone has to come up with the risk capital, and that risk capital would come from investors. Now, if you do not have sufficient investors locally, then you have to go abroad. Very interesting. So do you think that there's perhaps a, a, any any policies that, that you think that could be implemented that that might do a better job of um, uh, of you know keeping keeping ho- housing for for local residents, but maybe um, not putting us back to this kind of provincial thinking where we're where we're limiting the rest of the world from from coming to Vancouver. Uh, so I think one of the things is to look at the financing of new housing construction very carefully, and if there is a need for the government to help. Lenders lend to builders when you have a direct and clear evidence of unmet demand for housing 
and ease the restriction on the flow of capital so that builders can borrow without having to look for investors and they actually borrow funds from banks and be able to build undergo construction with some sort of underwriting from the government then that would release reliance that would ease reliance on investors domestic or foreign um, and and that could be one policy instrument that one can think about um, the other thing is to find all ways and encourage uh, builders and facilitate builders to build more on developable land. Look at the land inventories. If your land inventories are down to three years or less than three years, then find ways to create more. Uh, and if there is developable land without compromising sensitive green spaces, then make it happen um, and 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 um, and ease ease restrictions on on building brownfield. If the, you know, for example, NIMBYism is very strong. If people want to build nanny suites, and I think Vancouver has done some progress over the last many years in allowing for the nanny suites and all the, those new changes. Um, so, so there are some developments done, but I think financing of new construction, residential construction needs some rethinking and governments can play a bigger role if they don't want investors from abroad investing into new housing. Interesting. So Murtaza, um, clearly you're in Toronto. Toronto's market has taken off in the last, uh, you know, four years really, really quickly, similar to Vancouver. Um, and often people compare the two markets. What is it like? Why, why this moment in history? Are we, are we seeing such an uptick in the market in, in Toronto and Vancouver, why? Why is it? Is it? Are we catching up, kind of, in, in the in the global position as as being kind of future cities? Obviously, you know, that is the truth. I mean, look at the global rankings of most livable cities. Vancouver tops it. If not, it's not the top city. It's the second or third city. Toronto is among always among the top ten cities. So you have the most. You, these cities are the most livable by any or every objective categorization of, of what's the most livable place in the world. So I think the people around the world pay attention to these rankings. They know we have got a good thing going. There will always be pressure. Um, and we have room to grow. Like Toronto can grow. We can, we, the, Toronto has much, we are about 6.5 million in the entire region. And comparatively, other places like London and, and New York and, and Paris are uh, twice, if not more, of our regional size. So we have we have the these potential to grow, and I think for Toronto at least there's a desire to grow, and Toronto has been growing. Remember, 40, 50 years ago it was Montreal. Nobody really paid attention to Toronto, and then because of the political considerations, as the businesses started to leave Montreal, Toronto became the the desired place to be, and it has since then never looked back. It's a city that knows it has its time has come. And it has been growing, but it has been growing now, even at a faster rate. Um, Vancouver is the most, you know, if you look around the world, there are hardly any places like Vancouver. I cannot name even five places that have the kind of infrastructure, the kind of natural beauty, the kind of uh, peace and, and calm and the absence of crime and the high quality of uh, human capital, the excellent universities, world's best healthcare system. You put all this together, you get Vancouver and you got the beach and the mountains and the highway to heaven. So, you know, if you have the highway to heaven, everybody would ride it. I would like to ride it. 
Wow, I've never heard Highway to Heaven, but that that sounds that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> I want to live there. Um, so, so Murtaza, um, the other thing I just have to ask is is so what is the biggest risk that we run now that we've now that the BC government has implemented these policies in your in your mind? I think the the risks are the unintended consequences. The government intervened with the best intentions. And, and it's not that they make these decisions lightly or that they are not considered all uh, possible outcomes. Um, every government, liberal, NDP, or you, you name it, they make these decisions with, with, with care and, and due diligence. But at the end of the day, we are limited in our abilities to forecast what will happen. The unintended consequences of these policies uh, are the ones that we have to be really concerned about. If housing really slows down as it is intended, it would have a negative impact on the provincial economic growth and the regional economic growth. If the housing prices start uh, to stop uh, appreciating at a rate, it would have impact on property taxes and municipal revenues. So we have to be mindful of the unintended consequences. So far, the the interventions have um, rather modest uh, impact on, on on the housing markets in 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 the greater Vancouver area. Um, you, I think, are still um, doing better. Um, the 2017 was more of a recovery year rather than. Uh, uh, a significant decline 2018 looks promising so uh, i think the fear is is not of the consequences that we expect would happen but the fear is of the unknown that what we don't know um could happen as an unintended consequence i for one always stay away from forecasting it's a very dangerous business so um i think one has to be very careful mindful uh, of, of the changes. And I think one thing that the governments can do, and I think I see signs of it in Vancouver and British Columbia, is to be flexible and adaptive. If you have a policy, don't have it cast in stone. If it is doing what you intended to do, let it happen. If it is doing something different from what you intended, then be be flexible enough to, to have another intervention and correct the unintended consequences. Fantastic. So, Murtaza, how can people find out more about, about you and, and your writing and, and your research? So, uh, my my co-author Stephen Moranis and I write the Hader Moranis Bulletin uh, for Financial Post and Post Media. Uh, you can see us uh, regularly on every Thursday in Financial Post, and on Fridays sometimes in Vancouver Sun. Uh, sometimes carries our our our, our uh, columns. Uh, you can find us on web at www.hmbulletin.com. That's the Hader Moranis Bulletin, but the website is hmbulletin.com. That's fantastic. Well, super fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks very much. That was that was great. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Murtaza Haider, Associate Professor at Ryerson, blogger, uh, writer for the Financial Post. Author author deep thinker on things real estate related yeah absolutely and again let's mention head over and check out the hm bulletin because especially if you're in toronto i mean it's for everybody in canada but the our listeners in toronto you should be listen you should be reading that stuff because it's they have really interesting articles and they seem to be really on the ground right yeah on the ground i mean Stephen moranis his co-author used to be the president of the toronto real estate board right. so i mean it's it's funny uh 
there's a wedding there of of kind of academic uh, language with with kind of on the ground research, and it's it's a refreshing blog for sure. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of refreshing, it was kind of interesting. I mean, we're in a climate right now where speculation is almost a curse word and uh, where yeah. developers too get a really bad rap, especially if, uh, you know, especially if they're, if they're pricing things at market value or whatever. But it was refreshing to just hear what, what he had to say about how global cities are, are birthed. Right? Yeah, and I mean, that's why I think that historical perspective is really useful here to look back at a point in Paris's history where it basically exploded on the scene, right? Yeah. Like a million people moved to Paris over a decade or two and how they responded, how speculation was rampant, but it actually helped to build Paris into a world-class city. And if you take that step back and think about Paris at that point, you know, Vancouver is going through a very similar process. Right. And I think it, you know, you might chart it to maybe the mid 80s. But I mean, in the last couple of years, we have uh, we have changed dramatically. And speculation is not necessarily something that is is a negative when it comes to to building Vancouver to a world-class city as it is already. And this is a question that all the city councillors are dealing with right now. I mean, do we build a border around the city and keep people out? Yeah. Or or do we open up the border and try and think of new integrative ways to kind of develop and to deal with these issues? Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating point. And it's one that in the municipal election coming up is going to be kind of top of mind for sure. Speaking of that, we're trying to get Hector Bremner on here. So I think Woo-hoo. that's going to be a future episode. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Stay tuned for really, that. Really, really interesting guy with some great ideas. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we should close by saying... We have a website. It's called the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. This is your one stop shop for all things real estate. Head over there. I mean, we've been talking about new listings coming, new inventory. If you're looking to sell, we just installed. Is it installed? Would you use the word installed? It sounds like it was more complicated than it actually was. But. Yeah. We now have a button on our website that says My Home's Value. It's the pink button. Press that if you're even considering selling uh, your property or even you just want to know its value and and we can definitely help you out with that. Absolutely, absolutely. And and it is good to know where you stand in the market. And again, if you don't have an interest in in selling but you just want to know your home value, we'll get in touch. We'll help you out with that. We'll give you a sense. No pressure to sell and, uh, you know, we just want to hear from you. Yeah, absolutely. We also have our research tools. Matt, if you're not using private client services, you're standing still while the rest of us power walk by. So head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com slash PCS and create your own account. It gives you sold prices. It gives you listing updates 36 to 72 hours before public MLS. It also gives you days on the market. It's just realtor level information. You get it. You need it. It's the best. It's over there. We also have a mobile app augmented reality folks it used to be something we joked about it's now something i use every day it's I, incredible I, i'm telling you i think I'm you, you. you so i may be one of the only ones but i'm i'm the future you're driving around pointing your phone everywhere no i i'm wa- i'm literally walking around uh not driving but i'm pointing my phone and getting listings it's a fascinating research tool it also has all the information of pcs for those of you who like looking at real estate on the go there's a button under research tools head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or if you just want to keep in touch and, and get updates about new episodes, also tips and tricks for investors, first-time home buyers, sellers, sign up for the Livewire, which is our weekly report. Uh, it gives you tons of great information, and you can do that on our website as well. 
But Matt, how can people reach you? Yeah, if you just want to reach me, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also have a, a nonpartisan line. Yeah, we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. No, we info, definitely don't. Info at com. Okay, guys. Well, thanks for tuning in and uh, enjoy your week. See you next Wednesday. 2,000 Faces for Radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs>